Half-Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half-Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half-Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half-Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood, from 1988. Directed by John Carl Beekler, who has a few other notable directorial credits, like Troll, the original, not the infamous sequel, but who's probably more famous for his long list of credits as a special effects artist on low-budget horror charmers like Trancers, Terror Vision, Ghoulies, From Beyond, and Carnosaur. Sadly, he passed away in 2019 at the age of 66. He is missed. It stars Lar Park Lincoln as Tina, probably best known for this movie, although she did do an extended stint on Knott's Landing as Linda Fairgate. Kevin Spiritus as Nick, credited by uh, the name of Kevin Blair, and probably best known for his almost 400-episode run as Dr. Craig Wesley on Days of Our Lives, and his 81-episode run as Tom Gallagher on the mid-80s soap Ritual, or excuse me, Rituals, plural, Larry Cox as Russell, again, probably most famous for this movie, but he did have a part in Heathers. Heidi Kozak Haddad, aka Heidi Kozak, as Sandra, mostly guest spots on television, although she appeared in the cult classic Society and in Slumber Party Massacre 2. Craig Thomas as Ben, as with others, this was probably his biggest role. Diane Almeida as Kate, another working actor with a number of guest appearances on television. It also has Jeff Bennett as Eddie. Again, not many other roles. By this point, Paramount did feel very strongly that the real attraction of this series was its spectacular effects work and the infamy of its gory killer, and they were looking for people who work cheap and look good in front of the camera. That's not to complain about any of the acting roles, just pointing out that the priority was not getting a name in these movies. It also starred John Renfield as David, also not many credits beyond this, Diana Barrows as Maddie, uh, another day player with a few film credits, including the wonderfully titled My Mom's a Werewolf, Elizabeth Kaitan as Robin, she had appearances in films like Necromancer, Assault of the Killer Bimbos, Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity, Silent Night Deadly Night Part 2, and Rollerblade Warriors, Taken by Force, which at least means that anyone reading her resume will never get bored. It also stars Susan Jennifer Sullivan as Melissa, very memorable here, but sadly with very few credits and a death back in 2009, also missed. William Butler as Michael, a consistent worker both in front of and behind the camera, mostly on Disney live-action TV and Full Moon Studios productions. Stacy Greason as Jane, another soap opera veteran with 467 episodes on Days of Our Lives. Susan Blue as Tina's mother. I believe she's credited as Amanda, but she I don't think her name is actually mentioned in the movie. She is an absolute voice acting legend who is RC in Transformers the movie, Stormer on Gem, Mrs. Featherby on the original DuckTales, and oh yes, she was also a voice director on shows from Ben 10 to Transformers Prime to The Tick to Finding Freaking Nemo. She is easily the most famous person on this entire thing. 
John Otrin as Tina's dad, a frequent character actor and day player on a number of TV shows, as well as an ADR actor on several big movies like Waterworld. Terry Kaiser as Dr. Cruz. He was a character actor who specialized in disreputable types. He's best known as the titular Bernie in Weekend at Bernie's, but I remember him as t sleazy tabloid reporter Al Craven on Night Court. And oh yeah, this guy Kane Hodder as Jason, who would go on to play a Jem Hadar warrior on Deep Space Nine. They, you know, play Jason in the next three Friday the 13th movies, becoming the only actor to reprise the role in more than one film before jumping over to the extremely popular Hatchet franchise as slasher Victor Crowley. We probably won't hear his name again or anything. The reason this cast list seems so large, by the way, is that I tend to mention core cast members and not extraneous victims, and in this one there really aren't that many characters who are being introduced just to be killed off. Almost everyone in this movie has a reason to be out in Crystal Lake and involved in the plot, and just about every death is in some way meaningful, even if it is only to give the decreasing number of survivors a friend to mourn and a sense of stakes to the conflict. We just don't get many extraneous victims, although obviously some of the people in the movie get more screen time than others, as is pretty much de rigueur of something that has a, a ticking clock in the form of a growing body count. The movie opens with a recap very similar to the one that opened the final chapter, with a similar selection of clips as an uncredited Walt Gorney, aka Ralph from the original Friday the 13th, narrates the legend of Jason Voorhees in a solemn, stentorian voice. It works on me just as well as it did in the final chapter, too. I guess I'm just a sucker for this kind of saga opening on the long-running series. The recap concludes with Jason trapped beneath the lake, and we jump to a credit sequence that feels very much like the final chapter. Instead of Jason's mask exploding, it cracks in half to reveal the logo. It almost feels like the people making this movie wanted to make something that could serve as a grand finale, while the people marketing it very much didn't want to give the impression that the fun was ever going to end, especially after the final chapter promised exactly that, and they're now three movies past that. Once we come out of the credits, we open sometime after part six. It's not clear exactly how much, but the summer camp has apparently been replaced by a single cabin owned by the Shepherd family. Jason's still down there, and his clothes to be, look to be relatively intact and not rotted by an extended period underwater. Up on the surface, young Tina, played by Jennifer Benko, is listening to a fight between her abusive alcoholic father and her long-suffering mother. She flees the house, climbing into a boat and going out on the lake, and her dad catches up with her and pleads her, with her to come back. We're assuming that this is going to lead to some kind of Jason action. Maybe he's going to surface and attack Tina as she's floating overhead or something. But instead, Tina shouts that she wishes her father would just die. And shockingly, the pier collapses, complete with the boat dock roof collapsing onto him, trapping him underwater, and grants her his, her wish. She begins to weep, overcome with guilt that something she feels certain is her fault... And then teenage Tina wakes from her exposition dream, much in the same way that Part 5 opened with the similar dream sequence, only of course this one is a flashback to something real and not a fantasy. And she's ten years older, probably, give or take, and heading back with her mom to the abandoned cabin to face her demons. 
which means we've now gotta be up near the year 2000 if we assume that this takes place at least 10 years after that flashback, which took place at least a little while after part six, long enough for construction to happen, so a good year or two minimum, which in turn took place probably a year or so after part five, which in turn was a about five-year time jump. I, I mean, I began to see why people talk about this series having so many timeline issues, especially because everyone still continues to dress like it's 1988. Now, Tina is going at the behest of her psychiatrist, Dr. Cruz, and since he's played by Terry Kaiser, we immediately know he's a sleazy asshole. But he ostensibly claims that going back to the site of her father's death will force her to work through her guilt. Which, look, obviously being wrong about this is kind of part of the point of the movie, not to get too spoilery ahead of time, so please don't take this as a criticism. But there's a big difference between exposure therapy and simply forcing someone to confront a traumatic experience that they're not over yet. Without a proper supportive environment, this kind of confrontational tactic doesn't cure something like PTSD, it triggers it, creating exactly the kind of negative emotional association that the patient is trying to get rid of. I mention this mainly because I do see it used unironically in a lot of fiction as a therapeutic technique, and it's anything but. Although, again, that's entirely intentional here. Spoilers. We see as they arrive that there's another cabin just across the street, this one filled with young adults sunbathing and preparing for a big surprise party. Again, this is very reminiscent of the final chapter, as in that movie we have a symbolic division between two very different kinds of film, each with its own cast, that wind up interacting in unpredictable ways. But in this movie, it's the teenagers who are the ones in the Jason movie. By now, we're kind of used to a number of different subplots rattling around slasher movies and getting resolved not through an emotional catharsis, but by the deaths of the protagonists involved. So everything we're seeing from the teenage party side of the street is very normal for a film like this. It's Tina and her psychiatrist who are the outsiders, accidental intruders from a paranormal drama about a psychic teenager who are looking over at a slasher flick and saying, huh, wonder what that's about. And looking back at them is Melissa, who snarkily comments, there goes the neighborhood, even though the only thing she knows about the newcomers is that one of them is also an attractive blonde like her. This is because Melissa is an exemplar of a trope that was incredibly common in the late 80s, the quote-unquote queen bitch or super bitch character, most famously personified by Joan Collins on Dynasty. If you've never seen that series, just think of Cordelia on Buffy as a later iteration of the same concept and go on from there. These characters were frequently typified by their immense determination, profound emotional strength in the face of setbacks, and an absolute refusal to be treated with disrespect. But because this was the heart of the Reagan-Bush era, a period of enormous pushback against the gains women made in the 60s and 70s, those qualities were always paired with heartless selfishness, consuming sexuality, and a desire to break up the traditional family by attacking the dutiful and virtuous housewife for whom they acted as foil, usually emotionally but sometimes physically as well. They were essentially a vicious caricature of feminists, played as villains, but for a generation of women they did become almost icons of female defiance in the face of patriarchal power. 
the reason so many tough women deliberately refer to themselves as quote-unquote bitches is because they're reclaiming that legacy of Joan Collins and turning the hateful caricature of feminism back into a positive force. Now, I mention all this specifically because I don't think it's unintentional at all that this film includes her, and I also don't think she's here as a critique of feminism like so many other films and, and television shows used a character like this as. I think she's in this movie very much as a critique of women who don't support other women, the ones Hillary Clinton referred to in her famous comment about a special place in hell. This is a very feminist movie, and I think intentionally so. And I think Melissa is there to comment on the model of faux feminism that was prevalent in the 80s and to show how it pits women against each other in a way that's ultimately of benefit only to men. Because I don't think I'm saying anything new or controversial here when I suggest that the slasher is usually a symbol not just of danger or terror in general, but specifically masculine coded threats to women's safety. There's a famous book on the subject, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, published just four years after this film was made. Slashers are often men, as culturally coded, not in any immutable or biological sense. There is a conversation to be made about transphobia in slasher movies, but it's not really relevant here specifically. Um, they often use phallic weapons that thrust and impale. They usually visit that wi violence on women. Again, culturally coded women, Gender identity is as separate from the culturally constructed symbolism of, quote-unquote, the woman, as it is from the medical and anatomical constructions of sex. And they are usually defeated by a woman whose purity and virtue separate her from other women. So the general construction for a typical slasher movie would be that Melissa is evil because she's a man-chaser and a rich party animal, and Tina is the sweet and dutiful woman who the man is attracted to, and who survives because she's sweet and dutiful, not because of any particular skill or ability she possesses, even if she does have something to set her apart from other women in that way. But this is, as I say, an explicitly feminist horror film. And so Melissa's cardinal sin isn't that she's after Tina's man, spoilers, it's that she buys into the idea that feminism is a zero-sum game, and she can only get ahead by dragging other women down. We'll dive into this a bit more as we go, but I want to lay down some of these basic ideas now so they're in play once we get to individual scenes. Speaking of, the next scene is Tina's mom and Dr. Cruz going into the cabin, which looks remarkably well-preserved. Presumably they have a caretaker, which says a lot about Tina's mom's financial status, as does her ability to pay Tina's medical bills without any apparent concern for cost. But this is a movie that's so not about Tina's mom that she's just credited as Mrs. Shepard on the IMDb page. And they discuss the case. Uh, it appears that Tina has been in a mental hospital, but that she's not making progress, and Cruz has decided to bring her here to confront her guilt over her father's death. It's never stated what Tina's uh, diagnosis is, which I believe is an intentional move. As we're going to find out, again, spoilers, Cruz is more interested in studying Tina's psychokinetic powers than in helping her with any mental health issues she might have, and he is deliberately subjecting her to intense emotional stress in the hopes of getting a more impressive display. 
he also threatens her with return to the mental institute if she doesn't perform, so it may be she doesn't have any mental illness at all, she's just not doing what he wants. Which again, is entirely keep in keeping with a feminist film. Women's emotional needs have been frequently treated as mental illnesses by society when they conflict with men's wants, literally as far back as the field of psychiatric study goes. While Tina unpacks, her suitcase pops open onto the ground and her new neighbor Nick races over to help. Tina is more mortified by Nick seeing her underwear than she is grateful though, and Nick winds up castigating himself a bit for his thoughtless over-enthusiasm. Not, again, not making a big deal about it to her, just, you know, kind of going, oh, I'm such an idiot type thing. And then we get to the big moment, the one that tells you we are firmly in not-your-decapitated-mother's-Friday-the-13th movie territory. In the study during their first therapy session, Dr. Cruz places a matchbook on the table and tells her to move it with her mind. When Tina says she can't control what happens and when it happens, he provokes her by shouting and yelling and demanding in a very, well, let's say not patient-centered sort of way, telling her that her abilities are driven by her emotion. And when she gets angry at him at last, the matchbook skitters across the table like it's alive. Now, just as Jason is tapping into a rich vein of symbolism as a slasher movie killer, Tina is tapping into her own set of lore and tradition as a telekinetic teenage girl that honestly goes back centuries. The obvious and immediate antecedent is Carrie White, naturally, from Stephen King's debut novel Carrie, but he was drawing on folklore about poltergeists, so-called noisy spirits, that inhabit homes with turbulent emotions and cause violent disturbances, usually in the form of objects hurling themselves across the room without anyone touching them. Now, the usual answer behind this is that there's an actual person throwing them then claiming that it was a ghost, because that's how a lot of folklore about mischievous spirits starts. But crucially, poltergeists have become more and more associated with teenage girls in specific, because there are a lot of cultural myths about puberty as a time when women begin menstruating and become charged with wild, irrational emotions that can burst out at any time in displays of anger. Now, this is obviously a very old, very sexist stereotype that has remained in common currency mostly because it's a good way to dismiss women's opinions whenever they conflict with men's. We have all heard this, you know, you're getting emotional, you're being emotional, women get too emotional, usually said by men who are equally emotional, if not more so. But this stereotype is so deeply rooted in culture at this point that we have to at least recognize its existence even if we don't agree with its foundations in reality. Especially because when you look at Carrie, Tina's immediate ancestor, her abilities first manifested almost directly upon her menage. Now, we've talked about this very briefly in the Friday the 13th movies back in part two. Ginny was hinted to be menstruating during the movie, which is linked very strongly, if again inaccurately, with female identity, and thus makes her a highly appropriate foil for a strongly masculine figure of terror like Jason. There's no actual menstruation language in this movie, but we're all intended to instantly recognize Tina as a Carrie White analog, and the associations around that are very intuitive for anyone familiar with the cultural tropes this film is trading in. 
Likewise, even though it never happens in this movie, a lot of stories about telekinetic women demonstrate the exertion of their powers through a nosebleed, which is the kind of symbolism that feels so obvious that you can't not point it out. And in general, women with superpowers tend to have esoteric abilities that focus their energy, usually linked to their emotions, out into real-world effects without direct physical cause. It's not universal, there's your She-Hulks and Power Girls out there. But from Wanda Maximoff to Jean Grey to Eleven in Stranger Things to Charlie in Firestarter, women tend to have a secret inner strength that is less gaudy but far more powerful than big strong men who hit things. This is probably to no small extent a metaphor for childbearing, which is again not fundamentally uh, tied to gender identity, but is strongly culturally associated with women. In other words, Tina is culturally about as female a superhero as you can get, Jason is culturally about a ma as male a supervillain as you can get, and it's kind of amazing that we got to 1988 before we got a movie pitting a telekinetic teenage girl against a relentless male slasher. And Tina's progress through the movie is 100% her struggle to find her identity as a woman in a patriarchal society. Getting back to the specific movie, Cruz insists that he's trying to help Tina get her abilities under control because they're dangerous to her and to others around her, and I think it's possible that he may even believe that. Certainly, Tina does demonstrate a degree of power which, if it went off in an uncontrolled display, could kill somebody and already has killed her father. But... He's clearly far more interested in the discovery that telekinesis is a real replicable phenomenon than in really assisting Tina with anything, which is sadly a pretty common trait in the medical health profession. If you read the history of medical health research, particularly mental health research, there's a lot of people out there who used as guinea pigs to their very real de detriment of all genders. It's very sad. And again, it's a degree of depth and realism that a movie about telekinetic teens fighting Jason Voorhees did not need to go to. It's, this movie is committed to its, its sequences, to its, its themes. It's a very impressive film, in my opinion. Oh yes, and part of yours, Russell and Sandra, are having sex in their van because it is still a Jason movie. That night, a grieving Tina goes out to the dock where her father died, reliving the events of that evening and wishing she could somehow bring him back. If I do have a complaint about this movie as a feminist work, it's that they really do go pretty easy on the abusive dad. There's a lot of redemption on offer for a man whose primary contribution to making amends in life was saying he didn't mean to hit his wife. I think if this was made 30 years later, we'd be seeing a very different take on this character, but in 1988, that, that familial patriarchal authority was kind of the last really unassailable bastion of the, the you know, male authority. You could be mad about men who were sexist at work, you could be mad about men who were sexist, you know, in politics, but... Men who were sexist in their family life and who were misogynist in their family life almost always got a chance to redeem themselves. And in this case, even though he's dead, Tina instinctively reaches down into the lake with her mind and senses a presence. Someone trapped beneath her, the surface of the water, just like her dad was trapped under the pier. She reaches out and telekinetically sets him free, but 
Of course, it's not her father, it's Jason. He looks significantly rotted after a decade or so underwater. This is a, a titanically beautiful piece of, of makeup, even though I do think the hands are a little bit of a mistake. They look a little too much like gloves with a skeletal print on them, but the rest of it is just fantastic. Uh, but he is still very much aware, and yes, you could argue that when he comes to the surface and starts killing people, it does sort of make Tina ultimately responsible for everything that happens, but as with a lot of adventure stories, it's a bit much to put moral culpability on the hero for a mistake born out of ignorance. She didn't know Jason was a spree killer, she just sensed someone trapped and tried to help. The blame is on Jason, who could have just, you know, not killed people, I suppose? Tina passes out, and Jason walks out of the lake. I don't know why he leaves Tina alone. Maybe he doesn't notice her lying there. Maybe he surfaced a little bit further out and away from them. When her mom and Dr. Cruz find her, Cruz claims that she must have been hallucinating due to guilt, and anyone who thinks this isn't an intentionally feminist movie needs to pay attention to how much of a theme woman gets gaslit about her entirely reasonable concerns by man with ulterior motives actually is. Meanwhile, out on the road leading to Crystal Lake, birthday boy Michael and his girlfriend Jane are having car troubles. This is kind of the inciting incident to the slasher portion of the slasher movie. The cabin across from Tina is being rented to throw Michael a surprise party, with all his friends and his cousin Nick there waiting for him, but with the car breaking down, he and Jane have to walk. While they're on their way, Nick comes over to invite Tina to the party, and she decides that what she needs is to get away from the crippling emotional powder keg of her family's old cabin. Cruz is upset, immediately threatening Tina's mom with another forced commitment to the mental hospital, but she argues that what Tina needs is a chance to be a normal teenager for a while, which is, again, spoilers, exactly what Cruz doesn't want, but he can't say that out loud to Amanda. And getting back to Michael and Jane, now this may surprise you, but they split up for a moment so that Michael can go to the bathroom, and Jane's immediately murdered by Jason Voorhees. I know, it's like you totally didn't see it coming, right? He then pursues Michael, and this is a sequence that really shows you how much they went the extra mile with the zombie makeup, in addition to the rotting clothes that are hanging on him, you can actually see his spine and rib cage through his flesh, sticking out with bare white bone, and it is so, so impressively done. And he kills him as well. And I'm just going to say here and now that having a character named Michael in a Jason movie, especially one who dies early so that people will spend the rest of the film talking about, is just incredibly disoriented. Tina arrives at the party to find the aforementioned Russell and Sandra, a yuppie-in-training young couple whose money is funding the entire affair. Aspiring science fiction writer and creepy incel vibe supplier Eddie, sleazy stoner David, Robin and Maddie, two women who are best friends and who are here to kind of try to shake their good girl images, Eddie's friend Ben and his girlfriend Kate, who are this movie's nod at African-American representation, historically not the series' strong point, and of course the aforementioned Melissa. Tina's a little overwhelmed, but Nick is genuinely sweet and friendly and kind of leaning, uh, giving her a shoulder to lean on. He is very much a get-you-a-guy-who-would. 
We get a little bit of social interaction. Russell is worried about losing his damage deposit, and Sandra is a little too anxious about placating him. Robin and Maddie are both interested in David, and Melissa wants Nick and isn't shy about letting everyone know about that or about the fabulous pearl necklace her daddy bought her, which brings class into the story once more. I'm not really looking at the movie from a class perspective, but we've talked about it briefly in the other films in the series, and I really do think it applies here too. Again, if you take this as a consciously feminist film, we see that the group splits out between women in relationships who are shown to greater or lesser degrees as socially obligated to defer to the men, and single women who see each other as competition for the single men. It's a very intentionally patriarchal dynamic, and into it, become, uh, into it come Nick, who is very much an ally. He's only there because Michael is his cousin, and he doesn't want to play into any of this game-playing. And Tina, who's interested in being friendly and supportive to everyone, but who's treated as a rival by virtually every other woman in the movie that she's not related to. And again, it is hard not to notice that the women who don't support other women all wind up being murdered by a guy. Oh, speaking of, Tina's overcome by a psychic vision of Jason murdering Michael. It's really cool because it's seen almost as an intrusion on the world around her. She doesn't just flash over to the scene in the woods earlier. She sees Jason restaging the murder right there in the kitchen, and she flees back to her own cabin. She realizes that Jason must have been nearby because there's a metal spike embedded in the porch, which is a little bit weird because it's clearly not Jason's actual murder weapon. There's no blood on it, and Dr. Cruz later finds that weapon in the woods next to Michael's body. This is a slightly odd plot point, but I think what they're trying to get at is that possibly she embedded it in the porch with her psychic powers, or possibly Jason had two spikes and embedded the other one in passing? I'm not quite clear on the details, but she goes to tell her mom about what she saw. Dr. Cruz says she's hallucinating again, and when she says she saw the spike embedded in the porch, he goes out to check. Of course it's gone, and Tina begins to doubt her sanity. You can already guess what happened to the spike. Gaslighting rears its ugly head again. Meanwhile, we get our only two really extraneous kills of the film, as a pair of random campers are murdered by Jason pretty much just as an excuse to get hold of a machete at last. It's a pretty unnecessary sequence, but it does lead to one of the most famous and spectacular kills in the whole series. Jason shoves the woman into her own sleeping bag, then slams it against a tree until the contents are a bloody mess. It's even more impressive before the cuts demanded by the MPAA. As with most of the later Friday the 13th movies, they excised a lot of the explicit gore. By this point, the series was attracting a lot of negative attention and couldn't really sneak by under the radar like it used to because it was a major studio release. The next morning, Kate learns that Ben has been sneaking out to see science fiction movies with Eddie on what were supposed to be their date nights. Not particularly important, but definitely fitting in with the theme of men's wants trumping women's needs, especially because the apology Ben gives is sort of perfunctory, and he more or less expects forgiveness. Um, and Nick goes to visit Tina. While they're talking, we get a bit of his backstory. He's a former no-good kid who's going to night school to improve himself, and Tina shares with him that she was institutionalized after her dad's death. 
But Nick is unfazed by this news and gives her a kiss. It's very sweet. And again, this is a this is a get you a guy who would. This is how you should respond to somebody who shares details about their mental health. If they trust you this much, they're asking for you to support them, and you should. And not like in a, you know, look at me, I'm so awesome and noble and anything, just because that's what you do. Neither one of them, unfortunately, know that Melissa is eavesdropping on their conversation. Tina goes over to visit the house a little bit later. My one complaint about this movie, we see that they are making kebabs, but somehow not a single meat skewer winds up impaled in someone's eye. I just, I can't imagine how that oversight got passed. And we see Maddie and Robin fighting over whether to smoke weed to get closer to David. Again, in any other movie, this conflict would clearly be about don't do drugs or don't have premarital sex with a stoner, but here it's very obviously presented as two best friends who are letting a man come between them despite him very much not being worth it. It's so hard not to notice how feminist this film is, honestly. And to that point, Melissa makes a cruel and ableist crack about Tina's time in a mental institution, and Tina responds by snapping Melissa's precious pearl necklace with her mind. She then leaves again, because frankly, fuck these people, just seconds before Nick comes down to ask what happened. Melissa can only glare daggers in response. Back at her cabin, Tina confronts Dr. Cruz and challenges him to explain why he can believe that she can move solid objects with her mind, but not that she can experience psychic visions of things happening elsewhere. He responds with more gaslighting, and she out and out says, No, you're not listening to me. You haven't heard a single word that I've said. Which doesn't even feel like feminist subtext anymore. That's just feminist text. That is a woman openly stating, please listen to me and respect my ideas instead of dismissing them out of hand. She talks about wanting to leave the cabin, and he threatens, with her, in, he threatens her with involuntary commitment, possibly for the rest of her life. And she throws a TV at his head with her mind and walks out. It's practically wish-fulfillment for every woman who's ever had to deal with some asshole who said they were too emotional. As she's leaving, she bumps into Nick and asks to see a picture of his cousin. When he shows it to her, she recognizes it as the victim in her psychic vision and knows that she's not hallucinating. She warns Nick that his cousin is probably dead, but by then it's too late, because Jason's finally gotten to the party. He goes after Russell and Sandra first as they go for a late-night swim, as has become traditional for Friday the 13th movies, the area looks freezing cold and completely untenable for swimming. Russell gets a brutal machete to the face, Jason swings it up at him as he's ducking away and it winds up catching him just under the chin, and Sandra gets pulled under the water and drowned. As is Jason's usual M.O., he hides the bodies before looking for his next victim. As Maddie begins making herself up to attract David, Melissa makes a pass at Nick, but he's more concerned about his cousin after his conversation with Tina. She decides instead to hit on Eddie to make Nick jealous, but he's not even paying attention. He's not into that kind of social game playing. He's honest about his feelings, which is how we all should be. Back at the shepherd cabin, Tina's mom investigates Dr. Crew's office while he's out for a walk and in the process discovering Michael's body. 
and she finds the metal spike he said never existed, a video recording of himself talking about how he hopes that putting Tina into the most stressful, least therapeutic environment possible will spark a display of her powers, and a signed confession titled, Why Yes, I Am a Ginormous Asshole, The Dr. Cruz Story. Okay, maybe not that last one, but it is that kind of, like, just really obvious, unhideable revelation of how terrible he is. Just then, Cruz comes back and has the unmitigated fucking gall to try to gaslight Mrs. Shepard about things she just fucking watched on videotape. When she calls him on his bullshit, he threatens to commit Tina again, but Tina overhears it and decides to get out. She drives off in her mom's car, but as she's barreling down the dirt road, she sees a premonition of Jason murdering her mom and swerves to avoid it, crashing into a tree. She's luckily unscathed, but the car is undrivable, and she's forced to race back on foot to warn her mother of the impending danger. Maddie, meanwhile, dresses up very nicely and goes looking for David and Robin to try to seduce him away from her friend. Again, the obvious issue here is the way that skeezy guys play women off against each other to get them to violate their own boundaries. But that's a theme that doesn't get strongly developed because she finds Russell's body just before Jason finds her. He chases her into a shed and murders her with a sickle. Off camera. Apparently Diana Barrows was kind of bummed that she didn't get a gory death, which is kind of a running theme, I think. I do hear people talking about how thrilled they are to get the really violent deaths. Good for them. It's worth mentioning that there's a lovely shot in this sequence of Maddie hiding on one side of the wall, up close and in clear focus so we can see all the terror on her face, while on the other side of the wall we see a blurry, distant Jason picking up his weapon. The wall perfectly divides the screen in half, and it's just gloriously well shot. If you look for it, you'll, you'll be impressed. At this point, there are just three couples left in the cabin, and they're all having sex. It's like freaking catnip to Jason, and he goes after them one by one. Ben and Kate go first. Ben gets an impressively gory death as Jason cups under his chin and squeezes down with his other hand to cave in his skull, while Kate gets a party noisemaker through the eye. Again, there's still not great representation for black people in this series, but these are very impressive deaths, at least. Upstairs, Melissa shoves Eddie off, openly admitting that she only started making out with him to make Nick jealous, and Eddie says, Rejection, huh? I can take it. I've been rejected by some of the finest science fiction magazines in the continental United States. Which is a cute line. I, I, I really liked that. It's... It's those little bits of humor that sometimes make a, a movie flow so much nicer. He goes off to take a cold shower just as Jason cuts the power. Nick finds Tina, and they go looking for Dr. Cruz and Tina's mom, who have in turn gone out looking for Tina. Nick and Tina stumble upon Michael's body, which is yet more proof that her visions were real. They decide to return to the cabin to see if they can find the others and to look for her dad's old pistol. Tina finds it, along with the metal spike that's the final proof that Cruz was lying, and, oh yes, some old newspaper clippings that give her a better idea of just who she freed from the bottom of the lake. Her shock and horror trigger a telekinetic storm that surprises, but still doesn't phase Nick. Get you a man who would, folks. Get you a man who would. David suffers from some post-coital munchies after sex with Robin, 
and goes down to the kitchen where Jason stabs him in the chest. I'm not saying it was because he opened the fridge in the middle of a power outage, but I'm not not saying it either. He then murders Eddie, who's opening all of Michael's birthday presents just after Melissa sneaks out of the house to find Nick. I really feel like these two murders are just Jason being a good housemate. Robin's next. Uh, it's interesting because there are two versions of this scene that were shot. In the first, Jason just throws open the door to the bedroom with David's head in one hand and a machete in the other and chops her right in the stomach. But they thought the effect looked fake, so they instead reshot the sequence back in L.A. and decided to kind of elaborate on it more because the machete kill seemed kind of boring with her going out to look for David and finding in another room a stray cat that had gotten trapped in a closet, and then finding David's head sitting on the bedspread, entirely in keeping with Jason's usual hide-the-bodies M.O., but still kind of a bit of a coincidence that she wandered into that exact room, just before Jason shows up to throw her out a window a la final chapter. Tina stays behind to wait for her mom, just in case she returns, and Nick goes looking for the other party-goers at the other cabin. Their plan is to get all the survivors together and get the hell out, but they don't know how absolutely futile that is at this point. Meanwhile, in the woods, Mrs. Shepard is looking for her daughter, while Cruz tries to tell her not to make any noise without in any way confessing that he knows there was a murderer out here and didn't say anything about it earlier. But when Jason shows up, he not only runs away to save his own skin, but actually grabs Amanda when he trips and falls, dragging her down and using her as a human shield while Jason stabs her with one of the nastier-looking gardening tools from the shed where he killed Maddie. Do I even need to comment on the symbolism of a man using a woman as a human shield in a patriarchal society where women supposedly trade independence for protection, only to find out that that protection only extends as far as men feel like they can grant it without consequences? Yeah, I didn't think so. Nick goes back to the cabin. Everyone there is dead. He decides to get the hell back to Tina's place, but instead of Tina, he finds Melissa. Tina's gone looking for her mom again. I, I presume that she's guided by the same visions that led her to Michael's body, but Dr. Cruz finds her first. Impressively, he attempts to fucking gaslight her yet again by telling her that her mom is just fine and waiting for her at the house and the two of them need to go back there together right away, but this is a little less believable coming from a man who's soaked in someone else's blood. And so he resorts to force, the last refuge of the patriarchy, grabbing Tina and trying to drag her back to the house. But yeah, that's not happening. Tina brushes him off and goes, continuing to find her mom, and Dr. Cruz, realizing how bad things have gotten, sprints in the opposite direction, only to find Jason coming after him with a gas-powered tree trimmer. Now, I'd like to point out that in sequence, once you get away from all the cutaways and divergences, Jason stabbed Tina's mom with one weapon while standing just feet away from Cruz, and instead of proceeding to chase and kill him, he went all the way back to the shed to find a different, even more brutal and terrifying weapon, and then went back to find Cruz. I have to believe that this is 100% Jason going, You used a woman as a human shield? Jesus, I'm a fucking murder zombie, and that's too low even for me. I think you deserve something special. 
Sure enough, he saws Cruz in half through the stomach and goes looking for his next victim. Which is, of course, Tina. She finds her mom's body, along with the corpses of Sandra, Maddie, and Kate, and when she runs back into the open, she finally comes face to face with Jason. And this time, it's Tina who crosses the road into somebody else's movie. She wraps him up in tree roots and drags him into a puddle, then pulls down a power line with her mind and electrocutes him. But, of course, Jason's a murder zombie, so it's not like that's really going to stop him. And this, by the way, is the beginning of a 30-minute-long epic fight between the two of them that is just absolutely the high point of the movie, one of the high points of the series. This is a spectacular set piece. He gets back up and chases Tina back to the party cabin. Unfortunately for him, we've already established that Tina becomes more powerful as her emotions get stronger, and being chased by a murder zombie who kills your mom tends to make you pretty upset. She throws a sofa at him, then collapses the entire porch on his head as he follows her back out of the house. She then returns to her family's cabin, convinced that crushing him under a massive pile of wood and shingles must have done the trick and gotten rid of him. But, of course, we know better. This is walking murder storm Jason from part six, after all. He digs himself out with his super strength, grabs an axe, and opens the front door to Tina's cabin just as Melissa tells Nick that she thinks they're both crazy and tells them she's going back to the cabin and they can both fuck off. And that's about it for Melissa. According to former Secretary of State Clinton, there's a very special place waiting for her. Jason then goes after Nick and Tina, but he is very much in the wrong house now. When he pursues them up the stairs, she slams a light fixture into his face, knocking him back onto the staircase, which collapses under the impact. And the scene that follows feels like the whole movie in microcosm, and I'm so glad to find out that other people agree with me on this. Nick steps over the hole, then holds out his hand in case Tina needs help. But she doesn't, and he doesn't press the issue. It is very much a women can do things by themselves, and men can be a good ally by offering help, but not expecting it to be a grand gesture. It's not something the film dwells on, but I don't feel like it needs to. When they get to the bottom of the stairs, Jason bursts out from the cupboard to attack the, that's underneath the stairs to attack them again. He knocks out Nick, but Tina is getting more and more confident with every passing moment. She tears off his mask with her powers, splitting it in half. Ah, see, that's what the credits meant. Then hangs Jason with another light fixture, then tears open the floor, then drops Jason through the open hole into the basement. But again, this is Murder Storm Jason we're talking about. He jumps up off the basement floor and grabs her ankle on the floor above, dragging her down with him. At that point, it's just the two of them down there. Just Jason, Tina, and a surprisingly large number of loose, breakable, and flammable objects. Advantage? Tina. She peppers him with nails, then sprays him with gasoline and sets him on fire, then flees with Nick, who's regained consciousness, before the boiler explodes and takes out the whole house. But Jason's still not dead. This whole sequence feels like the template for the big third-act fights in Marvel movies. It is just this huge, knock-down, drag-out battle. He catches up with them on the docks, and although Nick shoots him several times, well, again, murder zombie, he knocks Nick down, and then... Okay, 
This is the bit I really and sincerely kind of hate, because the way Tina finally defeats him is to summon her father's ghost to drag Jason back down and imprison him beneath the waters of Crystal Lake. Again, this is a movie that needs a redemption arc for Tina's abusive dad like a fish needs a bicycle. I'd honestly have preferred a scene where she said, you know what? Asshole, I buried one guy down there and I'm starting to think the only bad decision I made was in not making it two. But also again, that familial patriarchal authority is the one most resistant to challenge, and this was 1988, the era of Nancy Reagan and Phyllis Schlafly, so I think we're lucky we got the movie we got. Maybe we can construct a reading where it's her putting her guilt to rest, and Jason with it, or something. And with that, with the dispatching of Jason, we get an ending that's surprisingly stinger-free. The cops and the medics show up, and they take Tina and Nick to get treated, and Jason appears to be gone for good. Again. And will I keep this movie? Heck yes. It is wonderful to see a slasher movie that's unabashedly, unapologetically, unambiguously feminist. And the final fight between Tina and Jason really delivers on the action. I'm already keeping the series set, of course, because, you know, it's it's one box with all eight DVDs, but even if I wasn't, this is solidly one that would go on my shelf. Which means, for those keeping score at home, that I am a full-on fan of more than half the Friday the 13th movies at this point. I'm pleasantly surprised. And if you want to chat about that awkward ending, or about anything else that came up on this podcast... You can find me on Twitter as at, at half horror and on Tumblr as at half price horror. I'm also on Letterboxd as half price horror, no spaces on any of those, where you can see reviews of them, all the movies I've watched for the podcast and a list of everything I intend to tackle in future episodes. I love hearing from people. You can also rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. Also, I would like to give a special shout-out related to this movie. Um, after I did my rewatch and, and watched for the show notes, I wound up watching a, uh, or excuse me, I wound up reading a webpage where there was a very good article on this uh, particular movie that covered a lot of the same ground and the same topics I realized I was going to. Uh, it's by Cezanne Kohler. Uh, it's on blackgirlnerds.com. It is Happy Birthday to Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood. She makes a lot of really wonderful points. Again, we wound up converging on a lot of the same things, just by, you know, the necessity of we're watching the same movie and looking at the same kind of themes. But I really wanted to give a shout-out to that article, because I thought it just did an amazing job, and... I want to, you know, let people know that there's a lot of really, really good women writing about this, uh, and this kind of horror, and this kind of thematic uh, analysis. Um, and next time on Half Price Horror, we open up the Lament configuration, rip wide the boundaries to other dimensions, and tear your soul apart with 1987's Hellraiser. See you then!